Hello, my name is Tristan Gooley and welcome to The Pursuit of Outdoor Clues, the podcast that invites you to join me in my pursuit of outdoor clues. In each episode, I venture outdoors in search of a new clue, and along the way, we get to know some of my favourites better too. In this, my first podcast, I will be looking for a new clue in muddy footpaths, more specifically, at the point where two paths meet. I've driven up into the South Downs and uh, parked the Land Rover. I'm not far from home actually, nearest village, a place called East Dean. And I've been welcomed by the sound of gunfire. I can hear a pheasant shoot going on a couple of kilometres away. And I've come to this spot to investigate paths and the omens are good within a few feet of where I've parked the mud is soft but we've had a couple of days without rain and I'm hoping these conditions are going to be ideal for reading the story in the paths for Many years now, I've been asked, what do you do if you get lost in the woods? And there are a few techniques that I know work. Um, The simplest thing is to to avoid walking in circles, and there are lots of ways of doing that. We can use the sun. We can use the clouds at night, the moon or the stars. And of course, all the, the clues to direction we find in trees, many of which we'll be exploring over this series of podcasts. But one of the techniques that I tell people is if you use any of those methods to hold a roughly straight line, to avoid walking in circles, then even in the wildest woods, you will eventually come across a path and when you find that path you just take an educated guess which way to turn and it doesn't actually strangely matter if you get it wrong if you happen to know there's a coastline in one direction you can you can perhaps use the sun or something else to to head in that in that broad direction but as I say it doesn't matter if you get it wrong because the next technique just going through the gate here dealing with a big clunky rusty chain yes it's the next technique that will get us out of trouble because what we have to do is follow a path until it meets another path And when that happens, there will be signs in the ground. There will be clues to the direction most people have turned. And that's the key. Because if we follow that direction and we keep doing that simple technique, 
that will take us towards the nearest civilization. There's no guarantee, there's a little sheep agreeing with that point there, um, there's no cast iron guarantee, as is so often the case in these sorts of clues. It's just really the law of averages. Paths we can think of as the wisdom of those who've gone before us. Paths, as we know, join two places and they're what our predecessors consider the best route between those two places and there's not a lot more to paths. Funnily enough, if a path isn't considered the wisest route, then people will engineer, pioneer a new path. And you can often see these in the centre of towns or, or even more remote locations in what are known as desire paths. If a, if a, a town planner plans landscapes, perhaps a garden, I saw one in, in London not long ago uh, near Temple Tube Station, and the landscaper will will put out the the beds and the trees and various things in the garden and then maybe put a, a tarmac path around them. But busy Londoners didn't consider that the wisest route. So if you go to the garden's nearest Temple Tube station, you can see that there's a shortcut. And this is this is what's been nicknamed desire paths. People have a desire to go in a different direction to the one they're being told. But the paths that have been around for much longer generally are the wisest um, because they've had decades and often many centuries of people walking from place to place and that combined wisdom etched into the land is what we call a path. Just walked up a, a steep short section over the, the mud and it's already noticeably drier the path but the view is just starting to open up beneath me the very first tinges of autumn appearing all around and more strongly in the deciduous wood as I look down to the south there the sky is a rather harmless leaden grey lighter in places but no sign of rain no strong winds I've just paused because I can hear something either in or just the other side of the hedge to my right it's a scrawny natural looking hedge some of the usual plants here. We've got hazel, bramble, clematis, the old man's beard, uh, a common sight in the latter parts of the year, sort of white, white tufts that give it that nickname. Now what's making this noise I wonder? as is so often the case. The culprit has become aware of me before I have got close enough.
recording podcasts and sneaking up on wildlife. Not a perfect marriage. Ah, interesting. I've just seen a burst of pigeons emanating from the tops of the trees of the woodland ahead of me, which would suggest there's something up there. It's not what I was hearing a moment ago. That was much closer. But this is a technique that poachers, gamekeepers and other wise old country heads have used for, for centuries. The birds have sentinels, individual birds or sometimes two or, or more that stand guard effectively on the tops of trees. And they have the best view of what's going on and when something approaches they're the ones to to sound the alarm. A lot of birds do have actual alarm calls but what the pigeons do is they take off with a noisy flapping and the direction they head is part of the sign so the sound and the direction that the pigeon takes off is telling the other pigeons there may be trouble and you want to head in roughly the same direction I do and that's why we see them head off in this it's not always perfectly aligned it's sometimes more like a an explosion with, with pigeons heading in, in all directions. Now the path I've been on has been fairly straight with woodland on my left and this organic scrappy hedge on my right and there haven't been any options yet so I haven't really stop to to study the ground to see whether this clue works and in truth I know it it works in a loose sense but what I'm aiming to do in this podcast is to really learn how to to read it and the thing that will be new to me is and the thing I'm investigating today is how can we tell if it's dependable and whether we can I've gained just enough height and in the distance I can now see over the broadleaf woodland which is mainly beech trees. I can see a spiky copse of conifers. Look like spruces, maybe firs as well in there. And their telltale shape is familiar and one of my favourite clues. We find whenever we look at woodlands in the distance that the, the trees are not all the same height. That would look very odd. But there's a pattern that we can spot. On the windward edge of woodlands, we find the trees have been hit by the wind more and they grow shorter in response. Just heard the flight call of a blackbird and just caught it hopping up there into a field maple tree. The carrion crow cause so often gives three of those slightly angry calls. I've just reached a, a junction in the path, which is very exciting, but earlier I got distracted by a by the blackbird and I didn't explain properly that the uh, 
the shortest trees are on the windward side of any woodland, of any copse. And since we know where most of the winds come from, what we call the prevailing wind direction is from the southwest, we find that the woods get noticeably shorter at the southwestern side. Uh, and this can create a, a tapering effect, what I've come to nickname the wedge effect, because it, it looks like the, the trees are driving a wedge in towards the direction the wind comes from. In, in very sort of uh, distinct textbook type examples of it, it looks like the, uh, the trees are almost shaped like a, uh, a sports car's bonnet, getting, getting much, much lower down towards the wind. Now, to the junction in the path. What we have is a major path, which is the one that I've been on, that I've been walking up into the hills on. And then it is joined by a minor path. The major one looks like every once in a while a vehicle, it would have to be a series 4x4 or a small tractor, goes up here. It's got those sort of telltale parallel um, uh, marks in the in the ground where the, the grass has been completely scratched away by um, tyres. But the minor path has only been walked on. There's no sign of any vehicles on this at all. And this is what we want to study this effect really because where a minor path meets a major path uh, we're going to get this choice made. Now there'll be plenty of instances where people turn both left and right but it is very, very rare that it's a 50-50. Um, there's nearly always a preference, and that preference, on average, is towards a town or a village. And here, I can see it is really very, very clear. The muddy path doesn't, it's not a, a T-junction, is what we call it in roads, isn't it? That, that perfect sort of meeting at right angles. But in in rural paths you never really see that and it's actually surprisingly rare in towns as well but but here there is a real curve as the muddy path meets the the bigger chalk one and it's downhill so that is what we should expect i know further uphill we're getting into uh we're getting further away from civilization we're getting to remoter more rural areas and down the path we head towards the road where I parked. So the path in that sense is, is doing exactly what I would expect it to do. But I'm going to take a closer look and see if there's anything within the patterns that I'm seeing here that would reinforce that. I've stopped to study these paths and the junction and the songbirds near me aren't happy about it. Uh, there's a small propeller plane in the distance, but above that you may you may pick up the alarm calls of some tits. I think I've heard a great tit. And quite often what we find when we're walking is the birds don't mind if you walk past, but if you stop in one spot, it becomes a bit more of an issue. It becomes a bit territorial for them. And that's when you hear these these alarm calls. They're all uh, a collection of short um, staccato notes. There's no song about it. It's uh, the individual note is, is a sort of tick, tick type sound, but, but quite often they, they rattle together 
uh, into a more percussive effect and that's certainly what I was hearing in the in the great tit just then um, back to the path um, there is at the moment nothing other than the very distinct banana the very distinct curve in one direction I'm not seeing anything in the ground itself that would would help me underline that that is going to be the direction towards civilization there are small tracks in the ground usual suspects uh, dogs I can see um, uh, several fallow deer impressions and that's something we do need to be aware of uh, the deer are not averse to to using our paths as well as forging their own um, but they don't of course head to town Right, let's have a look here. I'm going to follow the major path uphill a bit further, see what we find at the next junction. The path has led me into the woods now, so from open sky I now have branches reaching in over my head there are beech trees and some ivy growing off them some ashes here many of the ashes in this part of the world like so many others sadly are suffering the effects of ash dieback there's a really glorious specimen of of ivy here that's acting as a fantastic compass Ivy can be used to, to help us find our way in a number of ways but the, the simplest is actually that when it's really mature, when it's grown well up a tree, uh, it starts to uh, grow bushier and much bigger on the southern side and that's what I'm seeing here. There's hardly any ivy on the north side of this ash tree and it's growing a full two metres out in places from the, the tree itself on the southern side growing towards that southern light. Interestingly ivy grows away from the light when it's young but we don't confuse the two because when it's young the leaves look very different they have several points several lobes um, but the key thing on first glance is that young ivy uh, stays close to the tree. You never see young ivy, the ivy with several lobes and points in its leaves you never see that growing away from the tree there's only the mature ivy the, the ivy leaves with a single point that grow away from the tree are much much bushier and that's what I'm seeing there I don't know if you can hear that but it's an effect I call the fizz which is when the the wind sounds very very different in open country and in woodland but there's one particular sound effect which I know very well and I'm quite fond of it's it's when the you hear the wind at the edge of the woodland when you're just about to emerge so I've walked up and through quite a small patch of woodland just reached the edge there and I was hearing the fizz that that rustling of the leaves right at the edge of the wood I emerge from this small woodland there's there's a lot more ahead of me there's, but there's a small open bit of pasture perhaps only 100 metres across ahead of me here and there go another burst of the, the pigeons set off by me in this case and some pheasants that have 
spotted me and are making some nervous darts away. Actually, just the first signs of blue sky up to the north there. I'm gonna make my way into this wood and start to really get to the bottom of these path junctions, I hope. I'm just at the edges of the wood, um, and there's still a good, generous collection of bird sounds, mostly songbirds at the moment. And also, there is behind the, the first line of trees, there's a couple of blackthorns with their, their slow berries the berries used to make slow gin, uh, generously covering them. And the, the blackthorn tree is a sign. It's one that those of us who like to walk cross country get to know quite well, actually, because a little bit like children never fail to identify stinging nettles, and most of them can identify brambles, even if not by name, because these are the plants that are not very welcoming and, and can give us pain. The blackthorn is less common and less, slightly less well known, but its thorns are vicious. Uh, there are stories of blackthorn thorns going all the way through tractor tyres. Uh, I haven't come across that firsthand, but I have been pricked by them on many occasions and they will go through pretty much anything if there's enough force there. The sign they offer is actually that they very often conceal paths that are not used very frequently because they're a colonising plant. So if you're ever looking at a map and you think there should be a path somewhere but you can't see the path, getting to know what a blackthorn looks like helps because if the path has become overgrown, there's a, there's a pretty good chance that the, the blackthorn is the first culprit. So you, you look for the blackthorn and you see a couple of blackthorns growing there and then you quite often find that it's clear behind that um, and you, you're, you're back on your path. But you do have to go around them, there's no going through them. I've just spotted a, a sign in the mud. There's a, a light sprinkling of dry brown beech leaves over the mud of the path. But in a few places it's been cleared and that's what I'm seeing here. There's a, a little patch of mud with what looked like scratch marks on it. It's perhaps no more than a foot long, only a hand width across and what we're looking at here is the, the sudden stopping of a fallow deer. I can see in places near to it the, the normal sign, the normal marks of the deer but here it has come to what we'd in car terms call a screeching halt and I can tell which way it's been going because it, as it comes to a stop, the deceleration pushes mud out in, in front of its hooves. And that's what we've got there. So we get part of the story. So the deer was moving along here quite happily. And then something made it suddenly change. Uh, if I spent hours on this spot, we might be able to spot 
the, the, the story from that point onwards. Because the golden rule with, with tracks and sign of this sort is that these animals don't get into a helicopter and disappear. They've gone somewhere, so they will have left sign of where they've gone. That one, I can't see. I think because of this covering of leaves is making it rather tricky. I can't see its next stopping point. But the story thus far is fairly clear. Still heading uphill on the, the same path, but it's opened up a little bit now so I can see the sky and the the trees have changed a bit as well. There are some pines, the first pines I've seen on this walk and hawthorn. No shortage of that in this part of the world. And interestingly, a line of birches, silver birches. And the birches are a sign. They're another colonising tree like the blackthorn. And the fact we've got this change in trees, we've now got some conifers here in the pines uh, and a line of birches. It's a pretty clear historical woodland sign that, that I'm moving from one woodland to another. At first glance, it just feels like we're walking through trees uh, and they can blend into one another. But once we get to know the meaning within the trees, we find that each species is telling us something. And we find birches at the edge of woodlands. So that combined with the conifers signifies that I'm entering a new wood here. The path I was on has now met a much more substantial one. And this is clearly used by vehicles and tractors at times. In fact, I can see some tractor impressions and there's quite a fun quick sign in tractor um, impressions in the mud. Whenever you see a sign of tractor tyres, have a close look at the mud and you'll notice that they, they're made up of chevrons. These are the sort of part arrows that the, the tractor wheel needs to, to grip the mud as it crosses all terrains. But the slightly counterintuitive, well for most people anyway, the slightly counterintuitive thing is that the tyre doesn't grip with the arrow pointing forwards, it grips with the arrow pointing in the direction the, that the tractors come from. What this means in simple terms is if you look at the marks in the mud where a tractor's been, you'll see these chevrons, you'll see these arrows, and because they do look like an arrow, and our brain likes to leap to conclusions, the, there's a temptation to think that the tractor has moved in the direction the arrow is pointing, but actually it's come in the opposite direction. So all you have to remember is the tractor tyre arrows point to where the tractor's come from, not the direction that it's going. Now back to this path. I genuinely wasn't sure what new clue I would discover looking at this way minor paths and major paths meet. But I've just got that rather exciting feeling, that synapse firing, it's like a tickling of the brain where I have an idea that I've spotted something that I've, like so many of these things, probably seen many thousands of times before, but never actually added up. I've never actually 
so many of these clues it's putting very very simple pieces together and coming up with something a little bit new and I think I might have one but I'm just going to spend a while looking at this this junction to see if I'm onto something still hear the shotguns popping in the in the background but they're not going to change the landscape that I need so we have this broad track you could you could drive any normal car through it and possibly even some smaller buses as well although they get caught in the overhanging branches uh, and then there's the junction with the path that I've just come up which is grassy mud in places and this this light layer of leaves and the thing that is intriguing me is not the shape of the junction because as we've seen if we look at the direction most people turn we get a clue towards civilization, but the thing that I'm noticing for the first ever time is that where this meets the major track is a sign of something that's related but different, and that is the confidence people have in that decision. Because I'm going to have to test this a few more times, but I can't at the moment see a fault in the very simple logic that if we don't know which way to go we are going to walk to the path in a neutral 50-50 kind of way we're going to walk to the more like a t-junction we're going to walk to the middle but if we are certain which way we're going to turn before we reach that path we're going to preempt that decision we are going to cut a corner that of course is partly what leads to this curved effect in the first place but it's the, the moment at which the minor path curves off as it hits the major path is telling us how confident those who went before us were in making that decision. And yes, there will be rash fools who get it wrong and we've all walked with them and we've probably been that person from time to time when you seize the initiative and you confidently declare which way you're going to go. Um, to have to unpick that logic quarter of an hour later but on balance the law of averages confident decision makers are more likely to be right and there's a very very distinct confident early bend off of the minor path here telling me that if I go right here I'm going to be heading towards civilization so that's what I'm going to do and I'm going to continue now on this more major path, more like a somewhere between a path and a, a track, until I reach the next junction, where I hope to test this new micro theory a little more seriously. I haven't reached a junction yet, but I've just passed a wonderful example of some storm felled trees where a storm has come in and tipped over some beech trees and there's some quite nice 
things to look at here actually. The trees themselves are a compass because most of our gales come in from the southwest. So most of these trees get blown down from southwest to northeast with the great root ball torn from the earth at the southwestern end typically. The next thing I'm noticing, which is very typical but still fun to notice, is that trees can come down in, in different ways. If a, if a tree is blown, um, blown down whilst its roots are still in the ground and has broken uh, somewhere up the trunk, um, this, this sort of wind snap effect, as some foresters call it, then that's game over for the tree. It's extremely unlikely to, to survive that. But most trees don't do that. In fact, when that happens, it's a sign of structural weakness. There's probably disease and, and fungal uh, attack of some sort going on, which has made the trunk structurally vulnerable. But most trees, when they come down with the wind, the, the trunk stays largely intact and the root ball turns at the base, which means that the roots still have access to the earth and the tree survives. I think I'm right in saying only about one in six trees will die um, when blown down in this way and they have another go at life. And what we're seeing in this beech tree opposite me here is, is a quite determined new life. And what deciduous trees like the beech do is that they start again from their lowest surviving branch. So the, the, the major branch nearest the base, nearest the root ball, becomes the main trunk. And the rest of the trunk acts almost like, uh, almost like a sort of uh, base for that new tree. And we can see most of the roots are exposed to the air and not doing much. It's just the few roots that have, have stayed in the earth that are giving it life. Conifers do something very similar. They come down in storms, but um, if the root ball uh, remains in contact with the earth, what we find is that the tree begins life anew, but it's from the tip of the conifer. So the opposite end of the root ball will turn up vertically uh, and very often start, start life again. And I see that in these woods from time to time in, in new trees and others. Right, where the next junction might be. I found a very subtle junction. It's not a human path, it's an animal one. So I'm still on the main big track. And along the edges between the track and the beech woodland, there's some undergrowth, mainly brambles. A uh, little wild rose in there, hemp agrimony, and a few other common plants. But what I'm seeing is a is a mini motorway through the brambles here, which is a uh, what I know as a muzzet from a medieval term for a pinch point where the animals um, forge their own path through undergrowth because. Deer, badgers, rabbits, uh, animals like this can't can't wander through brambles any more than we can easily. So they tend to forge their own their own roots. And what I'm seeing here uh, looks to me very much like a deer root. And I'm basing that on a couple of things. Partly because the the lowest undergrowth is is still reasonably intact. There's still there's still growth up to about probably 20 centimeters. Uh, which there wouldn't be if it was a 
a badger run. Badger runs tend to be clear down to the ground, but also there are other little telltales around me. There are um, nibbling and grazing signs in amongst the brambles that are um, knee height or or below. Um, I've talked to the ranger quite a few times about whether I can distinguish between the row and the fallow just from the height of that grazing and it's it's quite hard to do because the the range that the the row and the fallow graze at can go from near the ground all the way up to to our head height um, when they when they get their four four legs up on a um, a, a trunk or similar but yes it looks like a a, a a few deer have made that path. Interestingly, it's not a straight path either. There's a very distinct curve round in one direction. So if I had to guess, and I'm going to go and investigate to see if I'm right, there might well be uh, a deer lie near here. They probably won't have been there very recently, but I often find them in there in the, the hot summer days, lazing away um, in there. It looks like that sort of spot not immediately clear where where it is but the combination of this this muzzet here and the the shade being cast by these these beech trees that's a likely spot for finding a deer passing the time but it's human path junctions we want We're in woods not a million miles from my home, but it doesn't take that much woodland before you can venture into parts you don't know well. And in this part of the South Downs, I've probably been within a few miles of here, perhaps a hundred times, but I'm getting into areas I don't know at all well. Um, that is a real joy, isn't it? we can take a lifetime to, to know one patch well. Continuing along the same track, my eye was just suddenly grabbed by a complete change in growth to the side of the path. Um, it was Im impossible to miss. There's dogwood, which is fairly common on this sort of chalky soil um, although I haven't seen any so far um, but then buddleia the butterfly bush which uh, is not not the sort of thing I would expect to see in the heart of established woodland so it made me stop and so often the the way with searching for outdoor clues is that one thing makes us stop and the act of stopping makes us properly look. I've spent my whole life training myself to, to see these things. And yet our brain is hit by 11 million bits of information a second. So it has to filter those things out. So if something makes us stop and really look. We so often notice things. And then I noticed a strange colour through the, the woods to, to my west, to the left as I'm walking. And I, I peered through and there's a whole load of the um, protective covers used for growing saplings. So there's clearly some sort of regeneration project going on down there. 
and then looking for that I notice a change in the colour in the undergrowth and this has led me to a, a junction with uh, a forester's track which is faint enough that I could have walked past it I hope I wouldn't have done but um, and there's a very distinct pattern here the foresters are all coming from and going to the same direction because where this faint track is meeting the major one there isn't there isn't there is nobody turning right as they hit the major track they are all turning left now this in itself is is interesting because the foresters are coming to and from somewhere but that's not the sort of clue that I would rely on 100% to find a town or village because these are working vehicles and they'll be going to and from a hub so there is bound to be some sort of forestry base for this bit of work anyway in the direction they've turned but I wouldn't call it a dependable um, sign towards civilization but that's so typical with with working vehicles you know they're not they're not coming up to the track and thinking which way am I going to go they're you know probably going up and down this a few times a day from the looks of this not at all in recent months possibly not for a couple of years actually but still the, the curve is distinctly there um, and the story with it just going to take a slightly closer look Near that forestry track used for the new plant planting work, I've come across the first really wet puddle in this track. I've been walking for on it for over a kilometre, probably. Um, so that in itself is interesting. I mean, I've written about puddles before because to me they're a wonderful example of something that is assumed to be random and possibly dull but nothing's further from the truth puddles are a sign they're basically saying there is water in one small spot and none all around it so in that sense they're more interesting than a lake which is just saying there's a lot of water here um, lots of lake signs of course but back to the puddle um, next to it uh, there's some soft rush spiky dark green plant that is a sign of water in itself if you're ever crossing um, a meadow and it's getting a bit squelchy have a look for those little little sort of spiky uh, green plants typically up to going up to about knee height occasionally a bit higher and much much darker green than the grass all around them and they're telling you where the wet patches are so if you avoid them and head for the the, the paler green of the grass you're more likely to to stay dry but this this puddle here um, is what I know as a um, junction puddle. Whenever, whenever vehicles approach a junction, they turn and that leads to more wear and tear. The combination of decelerating, accelerating and turning churns the ground up a little bit more and creates the perfect home for a puddle. And that's all part of the story of these, 
these vehicles that have been planting the next generation of trees. Aha! Uh -huh. What have we here? A footpath, no sign of vehicles at all. Looks quite well used. A distinct dark green serpent of grass winding its way through longer, paler, less downtrodden ones. And it's joining the main track I'm on. And there is absolutely, well, I say no sign, actually, there's a tiny, tiny sign that some people are turning left, but most people are turning right. Um, by most people, based on this evidence, at least my guess would be 19 out of 20 people are turning right as they hit this track. And there is nothing approaching a T-junction. This footpath approaches the main track and then as soon as it possibly can, it starts turning to the right. And because this is not a, a working route, this is people on foot going about their, their walks for... 100 different reasons. This is bringing an old clue, an old favourite of mine, that the direction of the turn is telling us which way to head to get back to civilization. with the new clue, which I, I, didn't, I didn't know what I was going to find, but I'm really enjoying, which is that the earlier that turn happens, the more confident people were of that decision and here I think this is this is a real a real there's no such thing as a dead certain these sorts of things but this is as close as I could hope for I mean there's there's just one or two people going across this this hemp agrimony and 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 brambles and, and grasses here but um, those plants won't put up with a lot of footfall um, the, the plants themselves are telling us how many people walk on a path. If we get really heavy footfall, we get bare earth because no plants can deal with it. If there's substantial footfall, uh, we, we get some of the plants surviving. It tends to be a mixture of grasses. And I'll see if I can find some of the other. Yes, there's clover. That's another. And there's plantain there. And there are a few others in that family. Uh, that are what are known as trampling tolerant plants. I mean, I can see, uh, and, and it's pretty clear to, to anyone who sees this, that this is a reasonably well-used path. But the fact that if people try and turn left, they're going across these other plants here, um, the brambles. What else have we got in there? It's just brambles, grasses, hemp, agrimony. Uh, let me get in amongst it, see if I can find anything else of interest. mosses, um, probably a few others in there, but it's not, not a, important. The very fact that those plants are doing reasonably well there is a sign of very light footfall. It is just possible to see where people have walked through, but it's, uh, it's light. It's, it's really nothing compared to the major path. Um, so this is one that I'd be very grateful for if lost. I'm going to 
head home now after a cup of tea underneath this beech tree here and I'm going to enjoy testing the new part of that pair of clues over the coming weeks and I hope you do as well. Um, look out for the, the curve as the minor path meets the major path and then look how early that decision is made uh, and how confident people are in that decision and use that as part of your natural navigation, part of your map making and have a lot of fun with it. Thank you very much for joining me in this episode, my first podcast of the pursuit of outdoor clues. I hope you enjoyed it. Please do share and I'll be out again soon in the next episode in search of another outdoor clue.